Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Cronus Gaming, Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And you guys can find the show at X'sForPodcast.com, as well as X's for Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And we're going to be taking a look at some of the best books that the X line has to offer a little bit later on by checking out the sixth issues of both X. X-Men Red and Marauders. But, you know, TK, you and I have been doing all of this like crazy Punisher coverage and we finally hit the point that we've been saying would happen with our last episode. And, uh, dude, I think we got to talk some Daredevil. Yeah, it's uh, all coming to a head now. Now, I've spoken extensively about my love of Daredevil and not just the property as it exists at Marvel now, but my historic love of Daredevil over the years. And one of my big things has been there's really no bad time to become a Daredevil fan. I think that there are some really, you know, questionable runs, but there's always such a wealth of Daredevil to dial into and see ways it affects the sort of standing world of Marvel. My earliest Daredevil stories were, of course, The Man Without Fear, uh, right around when it came out, actually. But TK, I believe this run in its, you know, revised form was actually your entry point to reading Daredevil regularly. Yeah, pretty much. Daredevil is always a character I've been very aware of. You got me into Daredevil through Man Without Fear fear. And from there, I've just kind of been picking away at previous continuity and putting my eyes towards what's coming up. And I read the Sadarsky run all the way through basically right up to when Devil's Reign started. And I've been going regular ever since. It was such an exciting time because I had been a very big fan of the Mark Wade run, less of an enormous month to month fan with the Charles Sewell run, a little bit more a trade waiter kind of there for me on that one. And Chip Zdarsky came along and said, hey, I see the best parts of Daredevil and I see the best parts of Daredevil runs. And he synthesized something so truly unique. I would say that most of my complaints about the last two years of Daredevil under Zdarsky's pen have had a little bit more to do with the nature of event comics affecting storytelling. But with Devil's Reign, I feel that we got a truly beautiful summation of so many things that had been happening in the pages of Daredevil and the Marvel Universe at large. We saw the connection of Wilson Fisk and Mary Walker in a way that really truly finally made the characters make sense together and I know Kingpin and Typhoid Mary was something that you and I were all about I mean they're great characters I really was not a huge Fisk person until you kind of gave me the perspective and gave me some great background to read but even then in the Zdarsky run they're not like amazing until they really come together and then the synergy of these two long term daredevil villains who have you know worked together in the past and had a relationship in the past, but the way Zdarsky kind of weaves it all together and puts a lot of emotion into it. And really, I think one of the things that was really cool about Daredevil, the TV show, was that you did get a kind of humanity to Wilson Fisk, wherein he could be the absolute worst villain
villain, but you could still see that he was a person and you could understand how a human like yourself could be the worst. And I think Chip Zdarsky really made that part of the comics as well. Mary's almost like a, a good guy. She's almost a protagonist, but you know, the association with Wilson is really what takes things down for her. But they're both just these really strong characters and it's fascinating to see them together. Of course, that wasn't the only wonderful pair that came to the forefront in Chip Zdarsky's first volume alongside Marco Cicchetto. And that's, of course, the sort of finally a clear union between Elektra and Daredevil. One of the key tenets that we've talked about on this show is Elektra is often best used at a minimum. But we've really seen in the last few years an excellent way to foreground a character who should always be background. And, you know, there's a lot of romances that only ever work when the characters aren't together because you spent so long with them apart that it doesn't really make sense to try and reimagine them together. And I think we've seen some really terrific success with, you know, some form of unification of romances that had long been simmering, whether it's sort of the polyamory of Wolverine, Cyclops, and Jean Grey, or it's all of the implicit romance of Xavier and Magneto. There's so many longstanding relationships that when they finally came together, it was hard to see how they wouldn't hinder storytelling. But there's been something so powerfully dynamic and truly a romantic sort of, you know, it's going to fail to everything that's happened between the two daredevils, Matt and Elektra, who both share the code name. And I think the really smart thing was kind of leaning into this idea that Elektra is better than Matt at being a force. His job is to acknowledge that and then try and drive her towards being a force for good and one that doesn't kill, basically. But he really is kind of, in a lot of ways, stepping aside and saying, like, you're the goddess. I'm just kind of the dude that's trying to do my best. But if you had the same morals as me, we could really clean things up. And she comes in with, well, I happen to have kind of a mission that would meet both our ends. And the only way he'll join is if she kind of cleans up her act a little bit. It's just this very good balancing of you have to acknowledge that Daredevil is the name of the book and that we've always associated that with Matt. But if Matt himself believes that Electra really is the real person and he's just kind of there to support her vision, then we no longer really need to background her because we can't necessarily trust writers to treat her with the respect she deserves. The characters are really doing half of that work. And then with a writer like this, it goes the final mile and we really get this vision of Electra where she is the fucking boss. And that's how we have to see her. Otherwise, she really does need to stay in the background. It's just been such a pleasure covering so much of this Electra with you, not just because, you know, we have similar viewpoints on her, but because of the places our understandings of the character are just kind of conceptually different based on how we read her and the involvement we had with reading her. It's been a really exciting sort of transformation of character. And I think one of the things that we've also been so excited on this show is found in the first issue of Daredevil. Now, we are talking about Daredevil 1 through 3 of the current volume written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Marco Cicchetta and Matthew Wilson. This is the Red Fist Saga parts 1 through 3. There's also some backup material that we're going to mention in our discussion. But if you take a look at that, like, I think it's the fifth page. It's, you know, location six on the digital edition. There's this beautiful nine panel grid page. And while I wouldn't say that nine panel grid has ever truly been a hallmark of Daredevil storytelling, I would say that nine panel grid is a hallmark of classic storytelling and the gridding itself, the nature of layout and the scape of the panels, the longness that's created here by this dynamic visual is very intrinsic to the look of Daredevil, whether it's under the, you know, pencil and inks of Miller and 
Jansen, or we're talking something a little bit later on, like um, Leave, where even when the Dodsons did a fill-in, they did work to try and match Maleev's grittiness in a really beautiful way. So this is sort of a tried, true, tested element of Daredevil visual serial storytelling. And we get this, all these mats, an Electra in the upper right, Punisher in the lower left. And this is why we're talking about this, this duality. And Matt stuck in the middle being the grounded person that is constantly being washed over by forces that are so much bigger than he is. And even then, he has a relationship with other people in the same position throughout this story. I have become an enormous fan of Butch throughout this run. I just never a character I would have even given two thoughts to before. But Butch and Mike Murdoch are like, unfortunately, a thing I ship now. And uh, I don't even know if they like have sex with each other or if they just have sex at the same person. I don't know. It's just a small couch. But I really think that from the battle with Butch to the assistance from Spider-Man, everything about this first issue gives you a really great chance to vaguely catch up on the last volume, but really move forward with enough of the context given in a non-expository way. And I love that it really is like the tail end of the first Zdarsky arc in that Daredevil's just trying to get out of New York City. Like this is a time to tie up loose ends, but it is the start of a new volume. So there really is this like, I just got to get my business done and then go, which has a very, like there's a specific genre quality to it. But because we still start in New York with Daredevil trying to like do the last of his New York Daredevil stuff, we still are rooted in what we recognize in the character. We're just really being prepared a bit slowly, but not in a bad way for the fact that we are taking the next step and moving away from this location that we associate specifically with this character. And I think one of the things that makes me so happy is we're entering an age where people are really clamoring for a relationship between Daredevil and Spider-Man. And this run has worked so hard to treat that relationship with respect and complexity in an effort to really sort of flesh out these two characters, their story, their narrative, why they work together. And I get a lot from this that I really like. There is so much good in this book about the relationship between Matt and Peter. If I had one note about Daredevil number one, it's that it kind of works in very clear segments in a way that's easy to talk about broken down. We get the Butch sequence, then we get the Spider-Man sequence, that great splash page of Daredevil and Spider-Man. And then we're at the Kirsten sequence and the Goldie sequence. And I love this. I really actually think this whole I'm your guardian angel and I'm going to blow up a train is like nonsense in a way that I really fucking love for Daredevil. I thought I was not going to like it when it first got introduced in this first issue. I immediately was like, oh, did we maybe take the wrong direction here? But what I realized over the course of three issues and what I said earlier is it doesn't matter that there is a description that is related to Daredevil's concept of God, like that this might be a an angel from a Christian God does not matter. And I don't believe that the author is trying to be like, oh, we're doing a real biblical thing here. They're just the words that are being used. What 
really matters is the thing that I said before, which is these huge forces that are in play in which Daredevil, Elektra, Frank, a lot of other characters that we're going to see are kind of just pawns, are really not going to be making the big moves themselves. But I think what we're going to see is that, you know, while they might be ants to all these big forces, they're ants that can infect them all and kill them through a tiny little bite. And we're seeing it now in this third issue with the Strom winds. There's just so much that is being said to Luke, to Matt, to Elektra, that is, you guys are just pawns. There's these huge things that you can't touch. But we know that these are heroes that will figure out how to touch these things. And it's really fascinating to see street-level characters being told they're street-level, but knowing that the threats they're going up against are worldwide, maybe universal. We're going to have to find out. And I think in a lot of ways, nothing better represents that sort of the stakes are too big than the island, the Chips, Darsky, Raphael De La Torre, Matthew Wilson, and Clayton Cowell's story that closes out the issue between Electra and Stick. While there is something very worth discussing in the previous few pages that lead up to this, I think that might be better looked at as one unit because of the possible refrigeratoring that we luckily, we unplugged that fridge. We didn't go there. But the relationship between Electra and Stick, there's a certain maturity that Stick treats Electra with that I feel like he never treats Matt with. He's always sort of like, oh, Maddie, you're just so dumb, but I love you. And with Electra, he's like, Electra, you're just so smart. I can't stand you. But we're equals. I don't know why he's so Bronxite, but he is. And I feel very much that the interplay of these two characters, these stark colors, these clean lines, this is the sort of story that I could have seen intercut into this first issue, but man, am I glad it wasn't. I don't think it would have behooved the book to have that intercut into the story. I agree because it really isn't yet about Matt. It's really about, this is, these are Electra's loose ends. Her loose ends have a lot to do with how she was supposed to be kind of a messiah for the fist and really disappointed Stick and he felt she couldn't get her shit together. So she wasn't usable in his war and then things just went perpetually downhill from there. It's really about her confronting this idea that she's a disappointment to this person while still being so amazing that he has no right to see her that way. And that's just a bit of a separate story, but one I think that is very important to tackle because it is mythologically a huge part of Electra. Anytime we do an adaptation, we always get that moment where Stick is like, she was a prodigy, but she she was too angry and she disappointed me. And so I think having a, a moment to address that that's just between the two of them is a really good beat. And it's a really fulfilling ending to what is ultimately a number trick. I wish that the previous run of Daredevil had gotten one more issue so that we could have just kicked things off with one slash 650. But I understand that the numerification of comics has led to a commodification of low or extremely high numbers such that it would be wasteful of sales to combine it down into one simpler issue because a number one sells better than a number nine and a number 650 sells better than a number 622. So I understand why they would purposely put one separate from 650, but it does start to feel a little bit like the ends don't always justify the means in terms of the number game. I think it's tough because we are such big fans and are so likely to buy regardless that we just don't really feel the internal compulsion to focus on the numbers for the purpose of the numbers. We were going to read issues one and two regardless 
regardless of whether they were issues one and two, whether it was one and 650, or whether this was the middle of the run. So I can never really internalize that drive to be like, oh, you know, I'm going to pick up the first issue of the new Daredevil thing because it's issue number one. And then, oh, I discovered that the next one's Legacy 650. So I guess I have to get that one too. And oops, maybe you tricked me into being into this for the rest of the arc. I was going to be into it either way. So, you know, I do see some cynicism there in terms of driving sales. But at the end of the day, it's something that I think we really accept so that we can let great writers get paid to make great stories. Because ultimately, yeah, this is a pretty great story. And I am really happy with where number two slash 650 by the same creative team picks up that we find out that Kirsten wasn't on the train and there was only one person and Matt is able to save them. That really helps me because it still doesn't fully dilute the severity of the story we were getting. I think the interplay of the classic campus days, if we hadn't just read Man Without Fear, I don't know that we would have found it so romantic how much this feels like the continuation of Zdarsky's understanding of both Man Without Fear and Electra Lives Again as necessary components of shaping the modern Daredevil mythos, both with Woman Without Fear and, you know, the second half of his run, sort of the parts a little bit more distant from Kingpin. I just feel like we get such a valuable story told in such a complex way. I maybe wish this could have been one big issue, but I do feel very fulfilled by, you know, I think it's like Location 25, this issue that really is just Matt and Goldie talking out this new weird world that Matt finds himself in. There's so much power to those flashbacks, especially for people who are tired of reading the same flashback moment. I don't want to see Jean Grey relive losing Annie. I just don't. And I don't want to see Matt relive losing his dad. And I don't want to see Peter get bitten by the radioactive spider. So if you're going to give me something that tells me more about these characters from their past, from their history, from what makes them unique, thank you so much for doing a familiar version of something new so that I'm able to feel like I got my money's worth, especially when a number one is a little bit extra, a number 650 is a little bit extra. If you're going to charge me a little bit more for my books, thank you so much for making it so valuable. And for including so many iconic names that we associate with Daredevil. Truly, especially because this run could have could have become in many ways like the Charles Sewell run before it, which again, certainly not a knock, but it felt very about itself and very focused on its own ends. And for that reason, it never felt like it was looking at the bigger picture of Daredevil history over the course of the last, you know, 60 years. It felt very much like it was looking at a specific slice of Daredevil. Even though this run is working so hard to be its own thing, it feels like it knows its place in Daredevil history and is willing to share that story with you. And that's something I found really, truly charming about this issue. And I think now is an important time to essentially expand a current run of Daredevil to really acknowledge the history, the things that we associate with Daredevil right off the bat. You know, names like Elektra and Kingpin. It's been important to go back to those iconic moments and characters and play around with them a little bit sure, but to also just establish that we know what the beats are that are familiar in a Daredevil run, and we know who the creators are that created those beats, and to give everybody kind of a chance to play in the sandbox at the same time. 
especially because if we're talking about the history of Daredevil and why it's so special that this book chose to spend a little bit of time on the history, that art gallery who's who of classic Daredevil moments, we get that incredible vision of Typhoid Mary. We flash back to the devil in cell block D where Kingpin and Matt Murdock were both in prison together. We get a view of Fisk for Mayor, which is from the Sewell run, but for some reason it's followed by the Wade run featuring beautiful art from its original artist, Chris Samney, uh, featuring Ikari. While I know there were several artists before Samney, I mean, you know, the artist who did the majority of the two volumes. We get a very Jansen Miller view of Electra versus Bullseye before, you know, bringing ourselves back to this point with an angel and cutting back to the action. There is such a sense of the history of what came before Daredevil and an excitement for what comes next. And I just really felt that the PS de Resistance was not killing Kirsten. I agree. And I like that we do get the moment that acknowledges that there is something important to Daredevil thinking that it happened, but that also this is comics and we don't actually have to fridge people. It really kind of, as a reader, left me on shaky ground in a way that I think I need to be throughout this book because even things like saying, like, we know it's not going to all turn out well between Matt and Electra. That's true. I'm going into it knowing that. I'm going to need the book to constantly, like, put me on shaky ground such that when I think that things are going badly, they're actually going to go badly not in the way I expect or they're going to get really good to the point that I can't imagine them getting so bad again. But that was really a moment of, you know, I didn't like the idea that Kirsten was going to be killed and I didn't like how it happened. And then to just completely reverse it, but in the context of this weird angel stuff, I just don't know what's real and what's not in a very good way. I really love that perspective. And speaking of flipping things in a way that you weren't expecting, I was charmed by the idea that Andesenti and Chips Darsky were going to do a backup story in this issue. I believe I lamented it a couple of weeks ago, being like, it's just so overwhelming that all of these books are always so big. And I do feel that way. But while this was not necessarily the level of canon redefining that I found some of Andesenti's recent work, it certainly plays a really beautiful part into the Daredevil story story. It reminds us of the man that is the myth. It reminds us of who he is in a way that I find really important, especially when so few women have ever written on Daredevil and the previous writer used her most significant creation that had lasted throughout the title. You make sure you pay her her due. And that was the best thing about that story in so many ways for an already good story. In terms of Daredevil recently, Andesenti has really proven herself the queen of the subtle, believable retcon. It's not throwing characters together that you never can understand how they could have been on the page at the same time, knowing what you know about continuity. It's literally the exact opposite. It's finding connections that make so much sense. You can't believe you haven't seen them before or writing moments that, you know, of course had to have happened because this is a character that lives in this neighborhood that's going to interact with the people in the neighborhood. And you you don't question a little moment like this that you would have to imagine happened very regularly. And I'm just so impressed with the detail work that Anne Nesenti has done to Daredevil's past in a way that is really strong, but does not feel like ham-fisted in the writing of it. And that's what's really important. I think we're always trying to find writers that understand the core of a character without having to belabor it. If you can communicate Emma Frost's presence with a look that is so much more effective than communicating it with a line of dialogue. Now, they both take the same amount of work 
work from writer and artist in terms of their contribution to the idea. Framing the moment such that a look would be enough is the work of the writer. And helping to communicate the atmosphere, the vibe, the energy that the artist, the other half of the creative process, they're hoping to communicate to them. You really see how you can kind of make that fusion. Of course, if it's going to be told through a really beautiful piece of dialogue, the artist has to work to create the the moment that shapes that bit of dialogue. I think what I'm trying to say by mentioning so much of like the, the creation process is we talk a lot about how something's just not quite that character for us, even when it's not quite my Daredevil story. And Nesenti always gets my Daredevil character. It's so cute that Chris G is still doing his mini Marvels. These used to be in the bullpen bits. Uh, they definitely inspired me to do something uh, equally romantic and tributey to classic art in my original work, Kid Riot. I love these. It's a cute little page. And the fact that it's Daredevil Electra and it's female Electro, it definitely means that it has to be a new one. It's not just rehashing an old one. I loved it. Yeah, it's just cute and funny. And, you know, with characters that have this much history and have had this many writers touch them, sometimes you just, you just in a big issue like this, you need one page of levity. And I really enjoy the overall effect of the cover gallery. It's hard not to acknowledge that it's missing so many significant issues that help shape this discussion, like Man Without Fear, Electra Assassin. It has a bunch of the Diggle run, like it has all of the numbered issues, but it doesn't have any of the like required reading one-shots. That's just the nature of a cover gallery like this. It's really hard to be like, also add 50 more books, but I'll decide which 50. Don't worry about that Fantastic Four issue that he's in from 1967. No one wants to read it. Like, that's a tough call, so I get it. Yeah, it's impossible. You, we all have our conception of what our playlist of covers would be, and one day I imagine that we'll be able to create our own cover galleries and have them sit somewhere we really love, but in this case, man, what a privilege to be able to just swipe through and see without even covering, you know, everything that a long-term fan of Daredevil might acknowledge as important parts of the Daredevil cover gallery canon, how much is sitting there that is important to just the number of issues that got us to 650. And the issue past 650, the issue past 650 sees Rafael de la Torre fill in on art as Chips Darsky writes and Matthew Wilson continues his colors with VCs Clayton Cowles on letters. Red Fist Saga Part 3. This was when the book firmly left behind the introduction. That first two issues was a really solid, powerful introduction. Again, I maybe wish it could have been like a 60-page one-shot. But like, really, once we get into the magnificent issue three, where we have all of this interplay, you know, huge compliments to the creative team for having two men of color in the first 10 pages. It would have been better if they could have spoken to one another. But the fact that we have two significant, strong men of conviction who are also men of color, I love it so much. How did you feel about this opening salvo of like finally moving Daredevil forward? Well, you know, it's that, but it also is not that. (laughs) Daredevil has not left New York yet. For me, that's going to be my big measuring moment. The big dividing line for me is when he actually leaves. And that's not to say that this isn't a big step forward because it is after two issues that kind of establish that there's more going on here. We've got some angel and God stuff happening. That was the first act. We're on to the second act. But a big change for me is going to be when Matt leaves New York and he still hasn't yet. So for me, we're still pulling together all of these elements of Matt has to get all of his ducks in a row before he's comfortable leaving. And that involves talking to all these people that he has considered allies. You know, it also involves reintroducing the Stromwinds, which to me is such an important part of Zdarsky's run overall, because he really took the idea of toxic financial villainy 
to a new level. And I was not ready to see those characters dismissed so quickly. You know, I didn't think they would be at the end of the last volume, but it was really important to me to pick things up with them again and that they be as disturbing right from the beginning. Nailed it. They terrify me. Especially because, you know, you're saying that they are the villains that most represent financial inequality and the the villainy of wealth culture. We're already talking about the book that had fucking Kingpin in it. Yeah, I mean, and that's what was so brilliant about them was because that is how we've seen Kingpin for decades. And then we get reminded, like, there are people who have so much money, it makes Kingpin look like a peasant. And that was one of the most exciting things about Luke Cage's great stand against them. You know, the whole thing is Luke Cage cannot be made afraid of anything, even if he's not the man without fear. He certainly has the same balls. And Electra would say she has no problem with that line. She too has the same balls. Hers are bigger. So, you know, I just feel like a book that could have given a really blind eye to putting Luke Cage in as mayor. That's the kind of thing that, you know, we often see comics written by predominantly white creators featuring predominantly white characters do. They forget the value of the characters that are not the main protagonist that they've placed in different situations. But this character being a supporting character here who is more than capable of anchoring his own book, and I sure hope this leads to it. This was a really special inclusion that made me say this is why Luke Cage does what he does. And I love that he got a rise out of the Stromwinds, which Fisk really did not. They were at war and they made moves against each other, but it was all very calm. Fisk was the one freaking out, but it really became about can we reestablish levels of calm to play chess against each other? That's not how it's going to work with Luke Cage because Luke Cage is not Wilson Fisk and he smashes the table in front of them and they scream at him and that's just not how we did things before and it establishes that Luke Cage goes to war differently and he should and we should get to see that. Not only do we get to see Luke Cage engage in acts of war but we see the fist finally come up against its arch nemesis the hand with the eventual return of Akka. We have been wild about this character for some time and having the return to this force who represents another kind of darkness. Yeah, She's definitely not like the financial inequality of the world, but she's sort of the behind the scenes kingmakers of the world making their decisions. You know, we know how much the hand has contributed to the overall malaise of society. And she's a mover shaker up in the hand. In many ways, we can assume that she's on the same level as the hand witch, right? Uh, now I'm hungry again. And that is sort of why we had to talk about these books at this point, with the return of Akka and Daredevil showing up in the pages of Punisher. I think we really are starting to see this hand and fist saga come into focus. And I really like that for this book, if Goldie is an angel from God that has to play his part in order to move Matt where he needs to be, Akka is a demon from the devil who has to play her part for Matt to be where he needs to be. I love this idea that all of these people are coming and saying, like, it doesn't matter what I tell you. It doesn't matter that you think that you have free will. Everything that's happening is everybody playing their roles as needs to happen for whatever comes next. That is a really important challenge for Matt, especially when it's coming from both sides, because I think Matt's conception of doing right and his religion and doing right by God as he has learned what God is and what God expects of him can really be fucked up beyond all recognition if he is being told that he has absolutely no free will and no matter what he does, no matter what choice he thinks he's making, 
thinking he's actually playing into the game of somebody who thinks at a level that he can't concede. And I think we begin to see the pieces of him realizing how little he truly understood about this situation when he is so quickly dismissed by Akka, you know, rendered incapable. And from there, he makes a quick move to protect Foggy. Now, I am a decently big post-Wade Foggy fan. I'm a little hit or miss on Foggy before that, to be really honest. I think the TV show created a much better, uh, more holistic version of the character than a lot of the previous comics worked to do. So I'm always a really big fan of incredible reimaginings. Seeing Matt, you know, tell Foggy, you can't leave my side. This is a little bit of a rehashed era where, you know, oh, Matt's scared for Foggy's life and he hyper-focuses on him. But wow, you know what? Thinking about it, what else does Matt have? What else is there to take from him? Karen's dead. Mary, who isn't exactly somebody that he's connected to, is off with his nemesis. You know, it's not exactly like anybody's gonna be going crazy to get after his mom. You know, she's a nun. She's kind of sequestered off. Not like people would have a problem killing a a nun if they're also like a, you know, murderous demon maniac. (laughs) But there is just something to be said for, I guess, Foggy really is the only thing in play to take from him at this point. But what I love about this moment is it has just come after the other side has said, no matter what you do, you're playing into our hands. And he thinks he's going and saving Foggy because Foggy is the most important thing to him. And my first thought there is, Matt, at the very least, you have to acknowledge that by doing this, you might actually be putting him in more danger because you have no idea anymore who's playing the cards. And I love that he does not do that. Again, I'm on shaky ground here because is Matt playing into what everybody wants him to do to set him up? Or did he just save somebody from potentially being in the crossfire? Matt has no idea. We have no idea. And this does not feel like Foggy is necessarily safe at all. I love it. And knowing that there's got to be some sort of relationship between this book and The Punisher on a deeper level, it's not just that, you know, they both are connected to the hand now. We've seen Punisher's image here. We've seen crossover characters. And now we know that Matt has appeared over in the pages of Punisher. This really is a very different version of the same game that we've been playing for so long with these characters. I thought about doing a complete history of all the times Daredevil and Punisher have ever fought for this, but they honestly feel irrelevant. This isn't the same Daredevil, and this isn't the same Punisher. So any list of the times that these characters have interacted would only seek to reinforce that these are no longer those iterations. For that reason, I am really excited about the level of bravery that Marvel has shown in pushing these characters outside of the scope of what everybody previously expected, and instead into a new world where they have a chance to thrive as original ideas. And what I would say for anybody who's listening who is wondering about getting into this, yeah, Nico, you're exactly right. This is a great time to not have to worry about what came in the past. Not just in that way where like sometimes I'm a good enough reader with enough background in comic books that I can pick up an arc from issue one. And even if there's a ton of background stuff that's going to be in the arc, I can kind of skip it and just get the context clues. But sometimes when you do that, you do miss out on the literary beauty of the way that great comics writers refer to previous continuity. Part of the genius about what's being done in Punisher, about what's being done here, is that the writers are writing what you need to know to get that sense of how these characters have interacted in the past into the current pages. They're not relying on the idea that you will go back and read or that you should have to. They're putting it all out right now and doing that subtly while also exactly as you said, 
and kind of giving everybody a fresh start. So it really is the best of both worlds starting now rather than requiring you to do a bunch of legwork in the past. And it's a really good investment in a great story. And I'm really excited to see where the books are going to be heading in the future. This really was such an unbelievable opportunity that Marvel took advantage of creating this sort of intersection of these characters. I am really excited for the future of these titles. And of course, we're going to keep covering them every month. I am very excited to see Electra get a little bit more page time than she's been getting. But other than that, I can't imagine having a complaint on these issues. Yeah, I live in perpetual joy and fear. Like I said, I'm on shaky ground at all times. And that's exactly where I want to be because I, even in something like all of the X books right now, which I never really have any idea who's going to come next, who's going to be introduced. What I actually love about it is that we're seeing a lot of core X-Men beats constantly. You know, we're beating that same drum. These are the X-Men at their best. But uh, predictable isn't the right word, but I know the math already and I love the math of the the X-Books. This is kind of the opposite in that at any moment, even though I know Daredevil history and I know what the beats should be, the way they're putting them in the books and how they're referring to things, I never know what's going to happen next in a way that I'm scared for everybody. And it's really enjoyable to be in that place. Don't forget, if you like the content you just heard about Daredevil, you can check out more amazing content like The Billy Club, My and Tori Sheen's examination of Daredevil since the beginning back in the 1960s, plus all the current news. You can find that over at our partner's site, Hubs Plus, over on YouTube. That's linked over on the X's for Podcast page. That's Hubs Plus Network at YouTube, where you can find more amazing videos from this show as well as all of the many things that our team is a part of. If you want to check out my work, you can check it out at KidRiotComics.com, where you can check out that titular speedster doing his things saving the day as well as in the recently released young men in love anthology until we come back to take a look at more daredevil and punisher we have some amazing x titles just like tk mentioned we're going to kick things off with a look at x-men red number six before turning our attention to marauders number six now these are two amazing titles we had such an incredible time discussing them and they both come together to really give a picture of how judgment day is affecting the x-men and i couldn't be more excited to bring it to you guys as always you guys can check this show out every monday wednesday and friday mondays covering Spider-Girl, MC2, Spider-Verse. It's sort of a wacky ride we've been on, me and TK, and we're loving it. Wednesdays and Fridays, you can check out more amazing recent Marvel content. Don't forget to check us out online at X's for Podcast on Twitter and at X's for Podcast.com. Until next time, guys, enjoy these final two segments. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, judgment is always just an episode away. And until then, we'll see ya. Welcome to another exciting segment of X's for Podcasts, where we get together every week and talk about our favorite comic issues that have come out. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse, where I am suddenly now shipping Storm and Magneto. I will not be taking any questions on this. Hello, it's me, Steve. Uh, my pronouns are they and them. You can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A, where I am in mourning for the loss of my grandfather. Who is also my husband? I don't want to get into it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, uh, I don't even know what to call that. <laughs> yes, we were talking about Magneto, but.
And of course, that would make me Raven, aka Dame Red Red. Come over and find me on Twitter, Instagrams, occasionally the TikToks. And hopefully you will survive this issue, unlike the giant plastic gorilla where we could see its brain through. <laughs> like, what terrible zoo did you go to to get a wax figure form of that shit? That is the most, like, Silver Age Superman style supervillain <laughs> I could imagine, is a gorilla that you can see its brain because the skin is made of plastic. <laughs> I was thinking it was like one of those Teen Titan villains you know like with phobia and like he's part of that group and mr brain <laughs> that means we're talking about x-men red number six as written by the amazing al ewing Stefano castelli is our artist federico blee is our color artist and vc ariana mayer love that lady she is our letterer in production you know how did we feel about the cool little vignettes of the battles that we got to see like we got to see wrong slide and his reasonings we got to see dick rider we got to see a little bit into the mind of of uh, Raven's favorite character, Iska. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my god. <laughs> and you get to see my favorite character, Abigail Brand. Oh my <laughs> god. Has Abigail Brand never died? This is so crazy. Yeah, I, don't think she, I don't think she's ever died. She's like, I have never been this vulnerable. It's like, all right, keep it in your pants, Abigail. Jesus Christ. Right? It's like, mm, I'm so vulnerable coming out of this egg. And I'm like, Charles looks like he is about to spank you so hard. I just had a horrible, like, vision of Beast talking to Abigail in bed and being like, mm, baby, compromise my state secrets. And her son, <laughs> no, that is, that is not sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you that ever is- say anything again, Henry? Oh my god. Oh, that is definitely right. much sexy though. Like she gets off on that. She's like, yeah. Like, ooh, you've got a secret? Let me force you to find out. She's the kind of person who like shouts opsec in bed when he starts telling her things that are personal to him. Can I tell you a secret that I've never told anybody, Abigail? And she goes, OPSEC! No! I did love the fact that they started off with this this info page of something that I hadn't seen before. It was, like, both refreshing and it really did set, like, the level of peril for this book. I like the style that they used, like, touching on each character in the story because it was needed. I love how Dr. Marshall's, you know, like, even in his data page, he's exposing, like, how shitty Brand is to the Iraqans, to the Iraqi. What? Uh, like, Some sort of dodgy government agency would lie to the people with propaganda? Especially about a new foreign power? oh my god oh wait no i'm sorry that- yeah it sucks that <laughs> abigail is literally going around to like the humans and being like you gotta watch out for these iraqi they're aggressive they're dangerous they're unpredictable like man she sounds like hillary clinton in the 90s it's very bad um super predators oh you don't fucking yes. say don't leave this area don't go into the inner city you're taking your lives in your hands like this is so ridiculous and like craig marshall is a really interesting and cool character because it's not often we see a human who is like genuinely kind and like curious and open to exploration he seems more like a star trek character than an NASA character but a lot of the space agencies are are working with orcas <laughs> uh, you don't see a lot of human scientists even who are so pro mutant that are like they just don't even care about mutants this doesn't bother me that you're a mutant like you just don't see that a lot and a, a nice contrast from seeing the all, all of the people of color cheering for the mutants genocide in judgment day one and here we see no this is this is still the case where it's a universe where people can like take their actual real life daily experiences outside of superheroism and you know apply them to meeting new and foreign people well yeah and and like of all 
all the people who would understand community, like people of color, black people, they understand community, especially communities that have to pull together in order to function. They understand that so much faster than certain other lighter color people tend to. There there tends to be more of a rugged individualism from that side that, you know, so I many don't of us disagree. Yeah, it's like I hate to say these things, but like, because I was, I was raised in that rugged individualism. I was so severely raised in that rugged individualism. So it's like, it's weird stepping into cultures that I should have had more of a hand in when I was younger, but I'm finally getting it now. And it's like, oh my God, why are you trying to create a community around me? Wait, no, this is a good thing. Wait, what the fuck? But I, I love, I love the fact that this, this beautiful, gorgeous, can we please see more of him? Uh, Black man is, is there and recording it everything and like telling the fucking truth of the matter and 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 like the fact that he's become a part of the community and he's 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 saving these tiny wide-eyed children who are ready to die with him it gave me feels it gave me so many feels it's cool that he also is like upholding the themes that we see throughout x-men red especially with the brotherhood of like coming to the arachii on their terms trying to learn their ways and trying to like fit in with the community in a way that is acceptable to the community you know, he's he doesn't always get the phrasing right, but Lulo is very likely to remind him of, you know, the etiquette of talking about things. And it's nice to see that, like, it's not that the Arachii, again, are like people who are like, don't help me, I don't need help. It's just that they would prefer that you phrase it in a way that emphasizes that you're contributing to a shared work, you know, yes. it's that you're not implying that somebody else is powerless or weak or unable to do the thing themselves so that you have to step in. It's mm-hmm. saying, I want to be a part of this thing that you're doing i want to be a part of this effort i want to be a part of this community and we can work together on it and the Iraqi, i absolutely just love that and that's really cool i i love the fact that their culture eliminates a savior culture like yes. there isn't a savior culture there is a we're doing this together this affects all of us in one way or another it's gonna trickle down so we gotta work together to do this shit let's go and i'm like <laughs> it's so beautiful because yes exactly how you said steve it it's inclusive of everybody everybody is contributing towards a goal no one person is just doing it all yeah they're nobody's burden as a people and that's like that's so cool it's so rare to see in, in in fiction even though this isn't like an actual like real world culture of humans or anything like that it's cool to see a fictional people that are coded as you know like indigenous people or people of color being treated in this way something i've I've heard al ewing described a lot by a lot of people is probably one of the best writers especially white writers of uh minority or people of color characters like how do you feel al ewing does with a lot of the voices that he uses throughout i think al ewing gets a lot of things right sheds light on uh, kind of the the way people of color black people tend to pull together different way of thinking he doesn't always get it right and there are sometimes that it's just like oh, no no too heavy too no too much too much too much it's like okay no no you sort of missed the mark but like of all of the writers I have seen so far when it comes to writing people that don't look like them Al Ewing is doing a really really good job and at the very least he is stepping away from the heavily overused tropes that people of color have often suffered through when it comes to seeing characters representing representing them on the page so like you know we'll go with storm 
she has often been represented as, I'm a very free spirit. I just need the wind to touch my body. I need to go out and be naked amongst nature because I am this, you know, greatly empowered black woman. And I'm like, oh my God, please stop, please, please stop. Too much, too much, too much. And Al Ewing has instead gone with more of a empowered, but very mentally embattled storm who wants to do the right thing, who wants to help her people people who wants to, you know, make sure that everybody survives. And she's taken on a lot, but she's also like, I don't want to be the ruler of a nation. I don't want to be on a throne because that's where I've been shoved my entire life. Oh, goddess, 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 you know, queen, queen, queen. Oh, you need to be on the throne. And it's like, no, do not want to be on throne, want to be amongst people, want to like be able to feel myself and be myself and do what I need to do. And I love that she's not so one-dimensional. She's got layers to her. She's complicated. She's allowed to have moments of weakness or doubt or, or you know, just change her mind on things. Like, she's not a, a singular one-note monolith. She's got so much more nuance. And I love the fact that there is a, a writer who happens to be white, but also happens to do a really good job at expressing and bringing forward nuance to, to characters who represent people like me. There's a lot of shocking stuff in here, like the implication that Weaponless Zen and Core of the Burning Heart are the Fisher King's daughters, which that rules. Uh, I, I feel, I'm not sure how I feel about yet another Krakoan mutant being a part of like a, another ruling body of Arako. I feel like it's it's a little much at this point, right? Like the Storm of Magneto and also Bobby now, like it, it feels a little bit like, why doesn't the Quiet Council have any Arakii members? I mean, I'm sure the Arachia are not interested in this, like, what they see as, like, a juvenile state of mutants just learning to come into their own power. And I know that they don't necessarily feel the need to dominate anybody else's politics either. That doesn't seem like an Arachia thing to do. But it does seem like a Krakoan thing to do at this point, and it's starting to feel, like, a little weird. I, that being said, I'm glad it's Roberto. I'm glad that Bobby DaCosta is going to get to be on this council for a bit, and I, I hope that he can do some really good, because he's always been good at kind of working behind the scenes and constructing multi-layered plans and as we can see he's been pulling the strings in our x-men red since pretty much the very beginning of the book yeah that reveal was the biggest to me that beto's been behind a lot of this i was like okay cool this is you know this is the sunspot that al ewing had when he was writing the avengers aim so absolutely I was, like, I was like this is that brings him back to that level of complexity yeah and i al ewing always is like i mean in defenders he is like why is the universe something rather than nothing well because of the defenders and here he's like what is a man a gorgeous pile of secrets named bobby da costa <laughs> i love that he just doing these little fun bits the writing is so sharp on the series and it it just puts a lot of people who are personally important to me into personally important roles but it also does just so much of giving life to the Iraqi in a way that we've been like begging for since Ten of Swords, knowing about their culture, their society, their people. Every single new Iraqi we meet is a banger. Like Sizia of the Smoke, hell yeah, I cannot wait to learn everything about this Nightcrawler-esque woman from Iraqo. At first, I thought that was Blink. Yeah, right? Like she she has the Blink visual yeah. style, the green and purple classic villain coding, even though it's uh, clearly not applicable here, or doesn't seem to be. She's just really devilishly cool. I wonder if 
she's going to be connected to the stupid species of mutants that are demons, or if they're just going to retcon that out of existence. Al Ewing, you can do us a solid here. I, right. I love that Beto is like, he's drawn so well, and he's colored so well. Yes. Oh, it makes yeah. me happy. Federico Blee has gotten much better at doing that since the start on the uh, X-Men line. Yes, Storm, Bobby, everybody looks extremely beautiful here. The last page where everybody is so beautifully colored on that like panel right there. Like, mm. like there's different skin tones. It's, it's amazing. I never thought I'd love pinks quite so much. Because uh, Zillow, Magneto with that beautiful glowing uh, part that he's constructed for himself. Subnar, like so much use of pink in here, but it's done so beautifully. I feel like Magneto is doing a Metallo stealth cosplay throughout this issue, and it looks great on him. It's very appropriate. I'm so sad about Zylo. <gasps> oh, yeah. So much so much mutant history lost. So much Iraqi history, which honestly was stuff that, like, the Krakoans had only just begun to, like, dig through and access and learn more about. And it's their own history as well as the Iraqi eyes. And it's... It's so much of it has been lost. So much of it has been taken from them by this genocide and cannot be recovered. And it's it like breaks my fucking heart to look at Zylo now. I'm wondering if the Krakoan resurrection would bring back some of that lost history. I think they would have to have already made a cerebral backup of him. And if they don't have that, I don't know if they can get it because his body was the the waiting room. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm sorry. Waiting room. Uh, yeah, I like I don't know how it works. I hope it does. It's just like what we're told about how I mean, I don't I don't think Zylo would want to resurrect. It doesn't seem like the Iraqi I don't want to generally. They seem to especially the ones in the Great Ring are the ones who like don't resurrect and Magneto even removed his so that he could be on the Great Ring. So I don't I don't think that's really an option for Zylo. And I don't know if it would work anyway. But it, it does feel like we have to try to get it back. It is nice that he says we maybe have the beginning of a new history if we can live to see it. I mean, that is. That just speaks volume to like how history has been deleted, erased, covered over. Like, yeah, like that's so many cultures, unfortunately, in this world currently who had so much of their culture, of their history, of their language erased or ignored. It's a specific kind of violence that like, you know, we don't talk about in superhero comics. Yeah, and it's like it that was a gut punch. Like when I read that, I was just like, it hurt. It freaking hurt. But at the same point in time, they're like, We've lost the history, but now we're making new history. Like that's what we need to focus on. I'm like, I'm just gonna be over here like silently just kind of having a like Yeah, just weeping. Yeah. Can we talk about how Storm pegged Magneto on page in in X-Men Red number six? Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I give him. We both know it. my heart skips. I was like, damn. <laughs> Holy shit, that was hot. Right? I'm just like, um, I'm okay with this. I'm really okay with this. The most intimate use of a mutant's powers. A mutant circuit that becomes a dipole. Wow. Yeah. I just, oh, those panels are so freaking gorgeous. And then she's like ready and he's like, oh yes, give it to me. Uh, but yeah. we did not come to make love. We came to make love. No, I just suddenly wish they had come to make love because mm-hmm. that would have been, I don't know, a nice culmination. I don't know if they need to be a relationship, but you know, they can they could enjoy each other's company from time yeah, to time. Yeah, right? this doesn't need to be a relationship. Storm striking Magneto with lightning through his heart is already, that's, whew, that is, you you did it. Yeah. <laughs> like those, I think those are some of the best freaking panels I've ever seen. Like there's, there's determination, there's glee, there's, you know, oh, there's so much that just runs through those panels on so many levels. Just mm, beautifully done. So beautifully done. And the lettering. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah, that oh. dripping pink and blue. Like, the, I'm gonna say it, it's trans colors because it's pink, blue, and white. This dripping 
dripping Krakum when they strike the plastic gorilla. I, I'm not going to say that Magneto and Storm, like, psychically and electromagnetically pe- getting pegged in order to destroy a plastic gorilla is something I ever asked to see. <laughs> but is it, Never, a good, is it a good last, last thought for Magneto? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that, oh, beautifully, beautifully done. And somehow I don't completely hate Storm's outfit. Now, I still dislike it, but there's, like, something has changed about the artwork, and it just looks so much more... I don't know what the word is for it. It just, it fits a lot better. I feel like it, it looked a lot more like pants with a cutout in this issue than some of the previous issues where it looks a little bit more like a thong attached to pants. For a while, especially during the Utopia era, we saw Magneto really take a shine to Scott in a way that like, he thought Scott was the ultimate leader of the people. <laughs> but does he seem to have shifted to where he seems, where he sees Storm now as that ultimate leader of the people over Scott with his actions throughout X-Men Red versus his actions throughout the whole Utopia era? I have an interesting view on that, which is I think Magneto has shifted his entire viewpoint to where he no longer thinks of any one mutant as the leader of mutant kind. That was always like, that was always his thing. And that was his thing of conferring it to Scott. But I, I do feel like in the Krakoan era, a lot of his distaste for Xavier and what is Xavier has done and leaving Krakoa seems to stem from like his distaste for this like egotistical need to rule mutant kind. And I think he's like humbled himself a lot in trying to come to Arako and join the culture and like being friends with the Fisher King. That all being said, yes, I think he looks at Storm with the absolute reverence that one does for the leader of an entire people. Like, I think that he thinks of her that way uh i just also think that he's probably come to, around to the idea that maybe he's maybe he feels himself to be the white knight of mutant kind and i think that's pretty badass and cool for him but he doesn't seem to like he doesn't seem to anymore feel that somebody should rule and dominate in order to do it he seems to have come around to apocalypse's way of thinking which is also a batshit crazy sentence for me to say because i know right? don't usually think of him as a community-minded individual but i think i think he has made that change i think if you had told me two years ago that both Magneto and Apocalypse would be the most forward-thinking, selfless mutants. I would have been like, <laughs> yeah, I would, I would, I would not describe either of them as selfish or non-hierarchical until like extremely recently. So that's like definitely a nonsense sentence two years ago. Right? How do we get here? But I'm okay with it. It's been a journey. I'm a little of the mindset that like he does think of Storm as the one true leader, but he sees her desire not to be like just not to be a figurehead not speak for everyone and then that he's coming around to her way of viewing way of thinking on that where she doesn't want any thrones in Arako. like he's like maybe thrones are bad i think he thinks he has a lot to learn from storm in a way that he doesn't for scott so i will say that <laughs> I don't think he thinks he can learn anything from Scott at this present moment. You know, like there's nothing like disrespectful. I think I think they have a mutual respect, even if it is playfully antagonistic occasionally. Like X-Men Red number four definitely showed me that they they are on an even playing field at this point, even though Scott was working security for him. That was just the role they were putting out at that time. But like, I think that he sees Storm as somebody who can teach him new things about life, about love, about about how to be a person and how to organize mutant kind in a way that I don't think he sees for Scott. I love how the banter is so natural between the two of them. Like, it, it, and you know, his quippy response to, hmm, is that aftercare, Aurora? But oh like, my god. Uh, <laughs> uh, what a line. 
he's like, we all know there isn't time to heal me because we have to go directly into X Judgment Day number four. So how do we feel about the immediate conclusion to the story in Judgment Day four? There's no other option, really. When I thought over the long history of Magneto comics, I was like, how could they possibly kill this incredibly important leader, revolutionary, terrorist, monster, freedom fighter? This man who means so much to me and so many others, how could they end his story? I think it's really good. I think for Magneto to die facing a literal omnigenocidal maniac, a, a man who could be a thousand times worse than everything he's hated from childhood to now. I, I think that's an extremely appropriate end for Magneto. I wish he could kill the Red Skull one last time. <laughs> just one, just one last time. Yeah, this track, this absolutely tracks not only for Eric as a character, Magneto as a character. It tracks for how you would need to begin the end of an era. And I thought it was probably one of the most beautiful things possible because he lived long enough to become the hero. He yeah. started yeah. a severe villain, a person that was unreasonable, who was brutal, who, you know, just wreaked nothing but havoc and terror and you were supposed to view him as the villain and slowly but surely we finally got backstory and learned why he is the way he is and he didn't stay a one note character he became so nuanced and learned how to change his way of thinking like how often do we actually get to see a character change and he not only changed but he became something more and learned that he did not have to keep power to himself he didn't have to hoard power like the terrible people who came before him. His gift was being able to use his power for others as others needed it versus just following his own selfish goals. I loved it. I think that's a beautiful eulogy, Raven. And like, alright, we all know we all know that this is not the last time we'll see Magneto. I don't believe for a second that this is the real final end for the character of Magneto in Marvel Comics, but kayfabe brother, like, this is absolutely this is the end Magneto deserved. This is the glorious end that he always wanted and that i think he earned and you said it so well with that he lived long enough to become the hero and frankly if this was the end of magneto's story i would consider it a good end to his story it's phenomenal oh absolutely this post inferno magneto has been on such a journey he got a full arc i i feel like i feel like axe is gonna do to magneto what ten of swords did to apocalypse and you know not get rid of the character but take him off the table for a little while just you know so that he's not being used uh you know so we can miss him more but like I, he's gonna gonna have to make a return somehow some way you, you have to you can't leave magneto off table and eggman this was the last bit of magneto that we saw ever i think this would be a beautiful full story arc for the character one of the big guns of mutant kind his his whole arc in i could wax eloquent about magneto forever but his whole arc since the beginning of hox pox to now has just been i have been absolutely living for magneto in this era unbelievably cool i don't know this i am excited to see where X-Men Red is going to go from here. You know, I wonder, I, I can't wait to see how, like, Judgment Day as an event in its in its entirety has really kept me on my feet. I've never really known what to expect. And, like, I, I've got to stop thinking of it in more of, like, it's not what I expected and thinking of it more as Ten of Swords, where I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Ten of Swords was never what I expected it to, to be. But when it, when it comes out, like, came out and I read it all over, 
over and over and over again i was like this is a really amazing art because it's not what i you know and i think judgment day is going to fall along those same lines i have the faith that the writer is going to be able to do that uh kieran gill and i have total faith in his ability to execute the whole thing but like you know sometimes when you're looking at it step by step you're like wait wait what's going on here but i can't wait to see depending on where the world is left at the end of judgment day what al ewing does to rebuild the iraq i hope for nothing more than like full restoration and maybe some memories so they've went through this but like i don't want them to have to all be half dead or either that or as we've seen some of the iraq i have sort of seen that some of the krakoan ways do work so maybe they might be like okay resurrection's not as bad as we thought it was i think they should exile iska from the great ring and put her on the quiet council <laughs> <laughs> like i can't i can't i can't with her i just fucking can't well you're gonna have to with her next issue because it's called the winning side so i very much think it is gonna be about iska oh for fuck's sake i know she was only in like two panels or some shit like that but honestly <laughs> i'm insane. i'm like you coward oh my god so you just change sides because you're like oh the other side's gonna win i'm like have you ever tried have you ever even tried to to subvert that fate have you ever even put in the damn effort just because you're like oh i thought he's gonna win this just informs me that her entire life she's been like oh this side's gonna win i've got to be on the side that wins i'm like that just sounds cowardly it sounds like you have a predictive power not that you're necessarily always going to win you just know which side's going to win so you know which side to quote unquote be on yeah i agree i do think i think her power is predictive in a really strange way she's like a destiny but with combat <laughs> i don't know whether to be irritated or feel sorry for her i think genesis needs to come back <laughs> is what i think like i want to see how this plays out but it's i'm also going yeah but you also lost you 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 predicted that you would be on the winning side of ten of swords and you lost so i mean there's that so maybe try and rail against the fate that you predict in your head like do some work get some therapy (laughs) (laughs) have some strength of conviction I wonder how the progenitor would have judged her fail there's something she'd lose yeah I I I think she would lose for sure I think she's just a liability to have around most of the time. <laughs> like, if she's with you, she's a bellwether of your continued success. But like the absolute moment that things don't look like they're going to go your way, she's going to stab you in the in the face, like or the back, or you know, take off your head. Yeah. What if what if Iska is fandom? <laughs> well, fandom doesn't always win, so I guess there's that because it seems like fandom loses a lot. Well, yeah, but like, you know, they're with you, uh, you know, and then the second you're, you're not convenient anymore, bam, just punch you in the face. Yes. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. I love the appearance of uh, Cora of the Burning Heart and where she says, suddenly I smell Jasmine. And I love the idea that the Arachai Nightcrawler instead of Brimstone just mm-hmm. moves Jasmine all over the place. Tell me your favorite part of this issue, because there's so much that we haven't covered. So, like, tell me what favorite part of this issue that we haven't touched on would you like to touch on? I love that everybody is working together. And this... I'm, oh, this is going to sound so freaking corny. This is why representation matters. We get to see so many people, so many mutants, especially like on that last flash page. We get to see so many people of, of every variety working together to hold a society together. From Latuka the Knower to Sizia of the Smoke. We've got every variety from a- across two worlds. We've got somebody from NASA. We have children who've survived prison. 
prison. Like there are so many disenfranchised folk here and we get to see them holding their own. I love that. They're not bending to conformity. They aren't bending to, you know, they aren't just laying down and dying in this horrific genocide. They are banding together. Like I love this entire Yeah. Uh, what I love about the Arakai culture is too, whereas the Krakoan culture is very like human looking leaning with, with you know, leadership and everything. Like I would like most of the Arakai that we're seeing presented with um, are not human passing mutants. They're they're visibly mutated mutants, um, especially the Great Ring. You know, most of them are very visibly mutated. So I love how the society has not fallen within those same structures that human society or the human mutant society that was on Krakoa that didn't leave for a man that they adopted. It does bring up and it makes me think about like the ideas of like environmental pressure because I'm just like, are the Iraqi because they've spent like millennia in another dimension away from humans? Like, are, are they less human passing because like in the human world like if you're not human passing you often get killed as a child like is that is that an evolutionary pressure on mutants in the in the uh human world on earth i mean we got nightcrawler got thrown over a waterfall is all i'm saying for looking like a demon as a baby i know it's not common because you often manifest at adolescence but i'm wondering now like did thousands of years of evolution of not being like tormented and killed for looking different allow them to become this beautifully different and diverse species of mutants out there well i mean think of how just regular ass humans in 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 non-comic book world have treated anybody who looked different yeah. like the mark of a witch could be something as simple as a birthmark but i mean you know port uh port wine stains moles uh cleft palate deformities all of these were like known as marks of sin or or all of this stuff and and people were either tortured horribly or sometimes even killed for this differentness so so, like, the fact that the Arakai did not have to grow up under constant threat of death or not conforming in the way they look, like, I think that definitely had something to do with it. Yeah, a lot of people seem to think that the mutants don't, like, get oppressed by humans enough, which, if you think that, fuck you, stop listening to this podcast. But, like, seriously, I, a lot of people do seem to think that, like, the mutants need to be in contrast with and hunted by humans in order for us to get the mutant metaphor. And I think it's so interesting that when you look at the Arakai, it just, it pushes the mutant metaphor to new extremes in so many ways not just because of the art and the representation on the page and how they look and what their culture looks like and you know hearkening back to real peoples on earth with them and their designs but like there's so much to see with them by contrast with the Kirkoans. we get to see what mutants would be like if they never had that hate and fear i mean they had hate and fear of a different kind but it wasn't specifically because of how they looked and how different they were from baseline humans and it tells a it tells a story in that absence and i think that's really important yeah, yeah. And how the Fisher King is probably the only human looking maybe a mutant that we've seen. I don't know. I, I am strictly I'm saying he's a mutant. I don't know. I've been saying that before. I know that people disagree with me on this podcast, but everything about him is that he is a he's a weaponless mutant. He has two children who are mutants. He was born in the pits. This this man is a mutant. He just happens to be human passing in all ways. Well and, and I mean it even said in there, he is the king of nothing. His his omega level is nothingness. He's an omega not mutant. Exactly. So I gotta say, what is a mutant without their powers if not still a mutant? Powers don't make a mutant. I know that that is like literally what makes a mutant, but I think in mutant culture and mutant communities, it's not a blood quantum. I think at some point you have to say like, if you were born a mutant, it doesn't matter what your power is or if you even have none, you are a mutant. You are part of this community. You are in community with these people. You were born to it and you've lived it. Like it doesn't, 
it doesn't feel right to say that he's a human just because he appears to be human even though he has grown up in this community he is probably a mutant by birth he's probably the child of two mutants and he has mutant children look at storm when she lost her power like no she was still she was still a mutant like she was still storm i think the tendency to see fisher king as a human who has been living among the mutants is not correct i don't i don't know like i obviously people can disagree but i i definitely i i see him as a mutant the iraqi i see him as an iraqi he was there and that is what's important actually to this culture yep, yep. and i do love how the iraqi that that's probably my favorite part is how the how the iraqi were like no 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 just because it's a storm and she's like i should have been here and they're like no 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 just because you weren't here doesn't mean you weren't somewhere else trying to find what you're supposed to be doing that was such a gorgeous line like because i honestly i because you know iska and and some of the other more staunch iraqi tend to be like yeah no you failed you fucked up it's like oh jesus but i love that um logos logos lotus was like you weren't here because you were fighting somewhere else. Like you were fighting the same battle. You just didn't happen to be doing it. Oh my God, directly in front of our faces. Like we know that you were fighting. That's what counts. I'm like, I think I could be over here. Like I love, I love that because yes, it is. Because I mean, like so often that is the case. Like if you aren't seen openly fighting and doing all the things, like you must not be doing the most. And it's like, okay, just because I wasn't doing everything in front of face doesn't mean I wasn't doing anything. I was just fighting elsewhere. And oh my like, god, I do I? This does mean I need to reconsider the Avengers in my like they don't do enough for mutants. I, they I don't. Mean, do <laughs> I read the Avengers. They don't do enough for mutants. I'm just going to say that. Cap tries. Nobody else does. Cap did a great thing with Cap's kooky quartet. And that's the last of it, I think. But I do want to say that it's a shame that we never got, or hopefully will get in the future, maybe in some maybe in some other place, more adventures between new best friends, Magneto and Lotus Logos, because they're perfect together. One guy controls metal. One guy shoots metal out of his fucking mouth and speaks poetry. I, he has the best line in this comic, which is metal, my voice, vengeance, my desire. Yeah, those two are made for each other I, I think if you put Lodo, Storm and Magneto on a team, bam, unstoppable mm, I did like seeing Logos sort of learn from the some of the Krakoan ways and say, you know what, maybe these aren't as bad as we thought they were, like, you know, maybe we should try a team, like, maybe teamwork does mm-hmm. But still trying to stay, still trying to stay true to himself. Mm-hmm. Well, I I love the fact that he can stay true to himself even while evolving and and learning that okay, the way you do things is not it's not that bad. In fact, it has its merits, and I don't have to lose my identity in order to help, like in in order to become or evolve or or integrate some of your practices with mine. And I'm like, thank you, because I'm so, oh, the all or none way of thinking kind of just it irritates me because it's like look. Just because I don't do everything the exact way you do it doesn't mean that I'm wrong. It just means that I either process the things differently or that, you know, I I have to integrate what is there slightly differently so I don't lose my own identity and what I've already built myself. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast. My name is Jake and you can find me over on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O-H Mega Sentinel or O Mega Sentinel. <laughs> and I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. 
I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm Arturo, y ya tu sabe, you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And we hope you survived the experience. Unlike the green mutant who is being dissected in Philly by Brimstone Loves Acolyte Scratch. Oof, well, that must mean we're covering Marauders number six. Written by Steve Orlando, drawn by Andrea Brocardo, colors by Matt Mila, VCs Ariana Meyer on letters and production and Tom Muller on design. And we're going right into the theater of pain to a poor unnamed mutant on the surgical theater operating table. What a sad situation to find ourselves in. I was just glad it wasn't my precious manslaughter. I was just really glad it wasn't manslaughter. I thought it was Mellencamp on first glance. Thank you. Yes, I was getting some Mellencamp vibes. Mellencamp with a much, much more hideous face. And that's the acolyte that Jamie Madrix duped himself into to explode him from the inside out in Peter David's X Factor. It was gross. It was gross. On rereading, you know, today, getting ready for for the recording, when I read this first page, I was like, what? I don't remember this at all. (laughs) What what issue are we reading? Like, Mm -hmm. I had just, you know, because as we'll cover we very quickly are out of philadelphia and in the thick of judgment day well that's right because the last time we saw anything related to the theater of pain was in the marauders annual where brimstone love whose whose theater it is who's the patron of this wonderful theater came and tortured our poor akihiro and in the rafters of the theater we've got lockheed who looks like he's doing his best job as the world's greatest little spy and behind him oh behind him we have a mutant who we have not seen in 24 years of publication and his name is Dirtnap. Dirtnap was one of Apocalypse's dark riders which was his second group of mutants to do terrible shit. Dirtnap can absorb people by eating them up and taking on their forms and attributes and one time he ate Implate and Monet and they all became one big gestalt being before he indigested and exploded and that was the last time we saw Dirtnap in Generation X. This is a deep cut. Also I think it's great that we're now in a situation where we have one dragon being spied on by a rat that is actually a human morphed into a rat. Well, it has that excellent, like, Claremontian, like, you're being spied on, and the spy is being spied on, and we pull back by another, uh, on another camera, and that spy is being spied on kind of vibe. That spy is being watched by Sinister, who's monologuing about how it has another brother. So fascinated by one of the, like, core tenets of this issue that seems to be, and not in a bad way, but a little bit of a, let's get some space between this and the previous arc. And I thought that really worked well for this issue, because just like everybody said, like, I jumped in and I was like, what the fuck is happening? And this idea, though, that the current is still deep cuts and just queers on parade is such a value valuable through line to bind me in already. You know, I was talking to you earlier, Jake, and I definitely was not as big a fan of a couple of the middle issues of this arc, but yeah, I really love this vibe that's carrying through at this point. It feels good. And I do think given how complicated the previous arc was and how we were out in space, and I too was one of those people who was kind of like, you know, this is cool, but I kind of wish they were back home. There's so much going on right now. And I think it was very smart to start with something completely unrelated, something that we couldn't possibly mistake for being attached to the previous arc and just clearly establish we are we have that story is wrapped up we're starting something new this issue using that scene in the beginning was a nice way of 
fitting this story or, or fitting this team rather back into the Krakoan universe, right? Like we're part of the mm -hmm. crossover event and, you know, an Orcus reveal at the end, like we're, we're in it, which I appreciated because like, you know, as you guys mentioned this, our little romp through space, uh, while it was fun and it had a lot of, I think, interesting bits to it, it was kind of a weird ride. And we jump right into one of my favorite tropes, going back to Peter David's first run on, on X Factor, I'm at the Doc Samson episode, wherein he, you know, it's just psychological, you know, profiling or discussions with each of the team members. Oof. That was a formative issue for me. Even using that structure felt like a like a deep cut. And I think that there's a thing we see in a lot of books now, a lot of dialogue with characters working out their issues in ways that I don't necessarily dislike, but it's it sometimes gets very wordy. And sometimes you sort of wonder in the context of what's happening in the book, how there's this much time to talk. I do really love the conceit of, no, we're just doing group therapy today. Like if we need to have a time in which everybody needs to talk out their issues here's a legit reason why that that might exist and it was one of the things i found really funny about that x factor issue all the way back in the day was because i was really little and i didn't really think about the fact that comics could do stuff like that i thought it was all superhero stuff and it kind of blew my mind a little bit this is our slow beat this is our like nico said this is our palate cleanser before we move on to new things which are well seeded through this book but this is also our judgment day tie-in and in it we get to see we get a little hint of things going on around krakoa we see the that the gate to the altar has been destroyed. And so there are mutants trapped inside David Holler's head, his, his astral mind space. And so Fabian Cortez, of all people, has to stand there and supervise the growth of this gate while getting read to filth by Our Lady Cassandra Nova and Kitty Pride, Kate Pride. You know, we keep talking about all of the ways that this hits nostalgia buttons and hits emotional triggers for people, like in a good way, that it's like activating things. One of the things that I think is so interesting is that the book itself is covering such a birth of time that like we're talking about Kate Pride. No matter what version of Cassandra Nova we're dealing with, she is a new iteration for the sake of a new iteration. And, you know, we could maybe here comes tomorrow her a little bit. But then, you know, just like you said, so many of these 90s characters have not been seen in so long. And we can, you know, pin a lot of it to Gen X and the Saber material from X-Men and Uncanny in that time. I feel like one of the things that's making this book so powerful for me when we're talking about characters like Kate and Cassandra Nova, we're talking about characters that I could have never imagined in one book, and I kind of find myself overwhelmed by trying to fit the pieces together. I mean, the the journey of so many X-Men has been redemption, or at the very least, like, begrudgingly let's let them on their team and give them some sort of, like, neutralization strategy so that their worst impulses are curbed. And I honestly, I think it's a little more that than it is, like, it's a little more like Sabretooth with an inhibitor collar in the 90s than it is, like, Rogue Reform because she's still dealing with the programming that Jean gave her at the end of X-Men Red Volume 1. She's not bloodthirsty in the way that she was. And so that does kind of, for all intents and purposes, make her a new iteration. But she still carries the old baggage. You know, Genosha is not wiped clean from her just because she's got this new kind of forced moral outlook. And I will say that Steve is doing a good job of making her still sound like Cassandra Nova. You know, she's still... Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. there's this weirdness to the way she speaks that is uh it's it's grandiose but it's also creepy you know she's like she's having a great time she's smiling a lot she's but she's so like malicious and dangerous and she's not an immediate threat to the people who she works with slash for but to anything else like you point her outwards one of the things that i've bemoaned but also celebrated and i guess celebrated and <laughs> celebrate I don't know, but I've had such a relationship with this idea of the villains are among us. And, you know, I'm going to make a really funny example that I, I forced EK to watch recently. There's um, a Disney Parks show called Fantasmic. And one of the tenets of this show is that Mickey's dreams come to life. But because dreams are so powerful, even the dream of something bad could happen, could become its own thing. But there's actually contingencies for every Disney show. And the only rule is no matter how they cut the show no matter how they chop it up no matter how they handle it even if they have to call it early because of rain the good guys must win there must be some 30 second version where the good guys win that takes place no matter what and i don't know that i find that comforting but i do think it's a really interesting central tenet of the idea of the story of the hero one of the things that the x-men really embrace with the krakoan age is sort of the abandonment of the story of the hero in favor of a story that depicts the more complex moral world we live in and to that end i like that the villains are just everywhere my concern is always i think a little bit more that culture has this habit of like i mean i don't mean this funny but i do think we can sort of draw a line from the reality tv villain to trump's presidency we normalize this toxic behavior but something that the x-men have done so deftly in this age is remind us that these people are pieces of shit and mm -hmm. the failure of that is on fandom choosing to look the other way because Sinister's bulge is pretty, and some of us are really strangely attracted to the pointy teeth. I don't know what that's about. But it's a thing that I think they've managed, that Steve Orlando in particular, has managed with a, sort of a deft articulation that I've never once thought he wanted me to think Cassandra Nova was a lovely person to have over for tea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's never letting her off the hook. Truly. But I do think at the same time, the start of Krakoa essentially told us that we have to live with the best of us as well as the worst of us, and we have mm -hmm. to find a way to be a people regardless of the fact that some of us are not good people and let's even say not let's not say not good people because that's a moral judgment on a person a lot of us are people who do a lot of bad things but still have the capacity to possibly start doing more good things or be a productive part of a nation and i think cassandra is a really fascinating meditation on that because she is kind of being forced but she's also i I feel like she's the person that they're figuring out how to direct what's inside her into something that works as opposed to somebody like Sabretooth who they've just penned up based solely on the fact that they can't figure out what to do with him. Well, God bless Victor Laval, who's definitely figuring out what to do with him. Patron Could saint not... of Krakow injustice. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, my exiles, like, ah! Nico brought it up, Here Comes Tomorrow, and that's a really good pull because, you know, Cassandra Nova is definitely one of the mutants that was on my short list of assholes that we really don't need to resurrect <laughs> anytime soon. When a creative team grabs, you know, an, an otherwise irredeemable character like uh, Vita with Shadow King, Tinny with Malice, like 
it's really cool when it happens, right? Because like that, when you really push the the boundaries of the promise of Krakoa, cool things happen. And Cassandra Nova is pretty much an irredeemable asshole. But there was that shining moment wherein in the future, she's basically, you know, the Professor X. She's she's leading the X-Men at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know that that's a different timeline or, you know, whatever. It's not uh, it, it's not set in stone, but it makes me, you know, have, have a thread of hope that maybe they can at least weaponize her in a way that is helpful to mutant kind. I'm here for cancel culture because when someone is bad and wrong, they need to have their microphone taken. But I'm also here for forgiveness culture or when mm-hmm. someone puts in the act of penance and shows sorry. I mean, there's things that I just cannot forgive you for. Like, obviously, if you execute 16 million mutants, I'm not down with that. But if like, or, you know, if you like disrespect Mariah Carey, fuck right off. But like, I <laughs> think that if you, you know, pushed Rain Sinclair over to get a better seat on the mutant train and you just said that Heartbreaker is inferior to fantasy, okay, fine. You can still sit with us. Just say I'm sorry. But then we need to issue the I'm sorry. So like, I do think seeing the value in people and the value in forgiveness is just as important as the canceling because every one of us is going to make a mistake and society has to have room for that. Not to mention making Cassandra Nova a productive member of Krakoan society is good for Krakoa. Very good for Krakoa. Like whether she apologizes explicitly or not, having her work to benefit the mutant community seems to be the only, like short of short of like resurrecting all of Genosha, which is, you know, a work in progress, you know, making her work on behalf of the mutant nation seems to be the only kind of justice. Can we just for a second appreciate the fact that rather than Doc Samson, our therapy session is led by none other than the goddess of the glow, Birdie, in all her 90s hot pink shoulder padded glory. We actually had a debate about the shoulder padding, TK and I, because we were kind of confused. It felt like a bit of an out of touch to the rest of the outfit thing, but I think we landed on she's wearing them because she's on a boat. Because she's like the captain of this particular adventure. This is her little <laughs> kitty it's pride drag. Yeah, it's her. It's her. Oh. Kitty pride. Yeah, it's her and sailing I, dicky. And I stand by that. I think she's doing. That's this is her kitty pride cosplay while she is captain of the therapy uh, ship. Her original look was very. I mean, this is not just her original look. This is her look in the X Men versus Capcom, where you can play a saber tooth and like his special move is Birdie shows up with a huge honking, you know, Rob Liefeldian handgun cannon. Oh, and yeah. TK, we're both wrong because in that game she has those shoulder pads. Oh, okay. There you go. I'm looking at I'm looking at an image right now. So this is just this is just a part of her costume. She was ready to be on a boat. She was ready for a nautical mission. You know who wasn't ready to have a conversation with her though, speaking of shoulder pads, was Kitty was Kate Pride, Captain Kate Pride. And I think it's because we would have just had two pages of her girlfriend saying, Why don't you just come out? Why aren't you gay on the page yet? I mean, I think also we we have done so much quality Kitty Pride work over decades from her inception. And I love that Kitty's awesome, but I this was I thought a very smart move to take a break from Kitty for this particular 
particular thing, especially, I mean, like, you're right. The only really, like, emotional work we want to do with Kitty, I think, right now is deal with her love life. Um, And since that really is not a one-issue thing, and we've done a bunch of one-issues where we make little references uh, over the past 10, 15 years, I think it was smart just to set her primarily. Bishop is a great example of the character who's kind of in the exact opposite place. So smart to set Kitty aside this time around. Yeah, we haven't seen a lot of Bishop's interiority in this era at all, to be completely honest. You know, we've seen some of his feelings about being Captain Commander of Krakoa. I don't really feel like I know Bishop very well now. Not since, really since he, you know, went all, I'm going to try and kill baby Hope. What? First of all, what is his response to this era where Hope is like the linchpin to the whole resurrection operation? Like, we haven't seen any of that. But what we get in this meeting is, in this uh, in this session with Bertie is Bishop reliving his judgment where the progenitor comes as Randall and Malcolm, the two men he arrived in the 20th century with. Yeah, and I'm just glad that it wasn't like Hope Summers is a baby being like, you know... <laughs> You're judged, bitch. Honestly, I I would like all of these little sessions to dot 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 into resurrections. <laughs> so if this is you know hope for that coming, I think that would be cool. Even if they're just like support characters, like which is what I think Bishop has been. Right to your point, it doesn't feel like we've gotten a whole lot of characterization, but he has been the most reliable second in command. You know, Red Bishop slash War. What is he? The War Commander. Captain? He's the captain commander now. He's yeah, the, head like, of the whole shebang. Like just a, a cool, reliable, great supporting character. But agree, there's there's been no interiority. I'm checking the Nicopedia, and he's also listed as the star of my liquid dreams. So <laughs> oh. I'm I just need to be clear. This is a very important role. Very important. Bishop is always too fucking hot, and I think that because he's so fucking hot, that <laughs> try to get by on the fact that there aren't enough writers of color in the Marvel offices that bishop can be written with an authentic sort of um certainty and as a result of the lack of voices of color i think we see bishop shown as the strong silent black man very Mm -hmm. frequently and the over-reliance on some of that does occasionally get to me but i kind of congratulate steve orlando for working with what i think is appropriate for any writer to work with and shout out to Andrea Brocardo on art for delivering an absolutely hot, sexy, beautiful bishop, as well as just a great looking comic. I, I you know, I'm not going to knock the the art, you know, the, the previous artist for, for that arc. And it was really frenetic. It was very, you know, kinetic and crazy and energy and space and all that. This I found very refreshing and I really enjoyed her work. Yeah. And, and you were talking before, um, hoping that some of these conversations turn into resurrection. And when we get to Tempo's meeting with Birdie, you see that that's exactly what she has in mind. And I think they were smart just to give a kind of backstory that even if you aren't somebody who was reading comics in the 90s and aren't particularly familiar with Tempo or where she was, you can just understand the basic elements of what ha- what is happening here. I think even Bishop, maybe it's a little more difficult to understand exactly what's going on, all of the eccentricities of what's going on 
on with Malcolm and Randall, the fact they're time travelers. I mean, my first justification for why they wouldn't get resurrected is because they technically don't belong here and they will be born again. But setting that aside, Tempo's situation, this memory that she has and this wrong that she wants to write feels pretty universal regardless of what you know about Tempo. And I think that's going to be important for a lot of people who decided not to do a lot of background reading when they got into the X-Men, which is a pretty common thing that you hear, but I think a lot of times we don't think about because we all have such long-standing knowledge of these things. A book of this nature provides multiple access points depending on what your level of background knowledge is. You know, even I'm finding, I've found references through these books that I'm like, that are lost on me and that I have to go back and look at. And I feel like I've got a pretty solid foundation in uh, X-Men history. And to me, it's a pleasure to get to fill in these little pieces and to see all these little gems that the author is bringing and wants to show us and wants to say, see, remember this one? Remember this one? And again, it, it all ties back to me to the theme of this book that was explored in the first issue of Steve Orlando's run, this idea that like someone remembers and someone is bringing these characters forward and saying, this is someone worth having on the page whose story is worth telling, so I'm going to tell it. Uh, and I find something really moving about that, I, about forgotten characters getting their time. Uh, yeah, forgotten characters and characters that maybe have just not gotten uh, a chance to really shine. Like, I appreciate the way Steve handled Aurora's, you know, session. You know, I can't speak to it, uh, you know, from from a personal experience, but I would say there's a character whose, you know, mental health was framed in maybe not the most helpful ways originally. This was a cool way for Steve to say, hey, remember, this is part of this character, right? Like, we don't have to, like, tell you, but let me show you. And I think it's so fascinating that Tempo is such a major character in this story when her whole power set is about time. And we're talking about how this book is all about time. Cassandra Nova is such a major player in trying to find a lost generation of mutants when she executed a generation of mutants. Like, there's so many layers to mm-hmm. this unfolding of these characters. You know, my precious Akihiro really was born of an awful story. And, you <laughs> You know he's turned into such a such a romantic delight and we have it listen all of the shiar shenanigans were worth it in my opinion i don't care how many issues and, <laughs> and how much time travel was involved just to get a new code name for a hero oh, like bang. Hey, bang the name he earned like that's just been a problem like with him since the krakow era it was like eh, dokken's not really the best word like it's kind of offensive and it, I think Steve did a great job of it not just being, yeah, my new code name is blah, blah, blah. Like he had to earn it. Until everybody else started saying it to me, I did not really think that what they were saying was that it was going to be his new code name. I just thought it was this moment of pride for him that they, that the Shi'ar had given him this kind of title, like Smasher is a title um, or an occupation, I guess, kind of unclear. But I'm not arguing that it's not happening. It now makes total sense to me that it is because he has his only other code names are Dark Wolverine or Dokken, both of which are not great but it's very funny the way that he talks about earning things here I thought so much less about what this means for the character as a publishing property and it really was a moment of looking at his internal process and this combined with the recent New Mutants man they've really managed to soften this character up a ton I'm happy that we saw him like in this dreamscape in that outfit live for it but I am glad that in the real world he's still shirtless and looking hot 
and rocking his X-Factor uniform, or at least the, the belt. At this age, his father still had no actual fundamental memories of his life. You know, the thing that Akihiro has that is so valuable is people looking out for him that no one else had. And it, you know, it really is a queer eye that says, number one, let's fix the naming thing. Number two, mm-hmm. let's learn from our father. You know, I don't know many successful gays who didn't have a gay daddy at some point in their life. And not like a sexual daddy, but like an older gay gentleman of help. And, you know, this is gays as mutants. So older gay mutant of I <laughs> I didn't mean gay mutant. Gotta go. Like, that's the thing that the X-Men offers that I feel like the other teams of the Marvel Universe initially didn't offer, but the X-Men sort of proto-design. You know, when you think about the way that elements of genre infiltrate the functional format of a media, right? When a specific visual trope comes into vogue in a police procedural, all of the other police procedurals, no matter how long they've been on, start to do that and then it zooms in and then it's like a blue screen and it like does the little info on the side and everybody started to do that. And then, you know, it continued to evolve when one sitcom started to use texting, every sitcom started to use texting. And something that X-Men always utilized was this idea of it's not passing the torch because we're never out of this. I'm not saying that for all Avengers or for all Justice League, but for many of these stories, there's a sort of sense of the old guard versus the new guard, but something that the X-Men offers in a really unique format is communal family building a tribal living environment where regardless of age your contributions of what you can give are valued and you are looked at as an equal member of society unless you're a gray summers or xavier then you're better than everybody so i think that you're like we really are seeing that idea of generational living intersectionally and we're seeing that represented in different sort of groups of young mutant because even then Dawkins only been in the books since right after House of M. So we're looking at a character that's 20 years old and he's still considered a, a Dawkins. See what I just did? Fang. And he's still considered a baby. Which is crazy because he's like 60. <laughs> Yeah, he is. This is my favorite uh, appearance of Somnus so far, or my favorite, you know, little Somnus vignette. I think there's a lot to the character, and it's not easy to uh, to always get that across. And Steve really used the hell out of these two pages and mm-hmm. gave us so much insight into him. Like, just come for me directly next time when you say, over the hill, over the hill, in the closet, brother, uncle, <laughs> confirmed bachelor. I mean, not the in the closet part, but like literally all the rest. I was like, oh, you know, Steve's really writing this from a place of like, you know, personal <laughs> perspective or like at least he's, you know, speaking to me in a way. And uh, our faggotry and, was pointed directly at. Well, and, and he pulls, he does, guys, he does this incredible trick where he pulls North Star. He takes you back to that moment, which I thought mm-hmm. was great. And then he explicitly, Somnus didn't just have AIDS or or at least HIV he also I believe died of the legacy virus and I'm referencing so the legacy virus was basically a metaphor for the AIDS crisis it was the best they could do because they couldn't actually talk about the AIDS crisis right exactly editorial fiat Somnus says you know I'm living now and I won't spend a, a single second of that as anyone but myself I think it's great that that's an explicit part of the character less great 
great, perhaps. And um, I felt like this was the issue where it became very clear to me how his powers work, or at least how he used them initially, uh, is when he calls himself the man of every guy's dreams. <laughs> I'd be interested in seeing him have another session with Birdie and them having a long, long conversation about consent. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, in, you know, I reread the previous issue, and like at the very end there, I didn't catch it on the first read, but it's pretty clear that Somnus hooks up with Gladiator in, I guess it's Gladiator's dream. He, oh. like, 100%. Like, you go back and it is the, it, he doesn't have the, you know, like the mohawk, but he has the same hairline. He is definitely the same complexion and he is definitely the big spoon holding on to Somnus. So there's something, you know, and he says it here as well. He says, one guy and one dream at a time. So there's, I've got questions. I've got questions. And I think that's a, that's an interesting tension because, you know, on the other hand, it's, well, it's just a dream, right? Dreams are crazy. Mm-hmm. Dreams are nuts. Like, you don't know if if you dreamt something or if maybe a mutant walked into your mind that night and that's why everything was so vivid. It's an interesting tension that uh, that I think could be a disaster if it wasn't being handled well. There's a non-con element to I walked into your dream. Like, yeah. there's a real non-con to it that I'm like, hmm, okay. And like, I guess to an extent, there's the potentiality of non-con with any telepathic ability but this is specifically hey guys i'm gonna hang out in your dream for a minute what's up and like (laughs) it's do you think i cute i'm in your brain i'm gonna tickle your brain like it's i don't want people tickling my brain if they didn't ask me and somnus doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's going up to people and being like hey can i tickle your brain real quick he seems like the kind of guy who just like watches you and's like i'd love to tickle his brain Ooh, wait till he's asleep and like that's a little unsettling but i think that's i think that's why that tension is there because oh, like sure. yeah like he was in the closet and he was doing this and you know i think uh you know in a world with mastermind and empath and malice and all these other you know characters that you know abuse or just by the nature of their power can it can be abusive i think it's a it's an interesting tension you know it's something and i think it's something that could be unpacked eventually right like that would be really heavy to jump into like right out of the gate but it it is something that i think could be explored a little further we are not safe from the true judas of mutants judas traveler now who wants to talk about where judas traveler comes from told you he's the guy who wrote hook and running around It's a surefire way to speed things up when all it does is slow me down. Suck it in, suck it in, um, suck it in, rin, tin, 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 blah, 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 Anne Boleyn or whatever. Yeah, he's coming for the X-Men now. Anne Boleyn is so, coming for the X-Men. So Judas Traveler and Anne Boleyn are coming for the X-Men. And the last time we saw either of them... That guy's I- name is John Popper. <laughs> John Poppers, sorry. God damn it, Nico. <laughs> Judas Traveler, best known for his uh, hit appearances in the Spider-Man Clone Wars saga, which was a saga that no, I don't know if any of us have revisited since it came out. Nico and I have... Ah, well, then you two are best positioned to catch us up real quick on why Judas Traveler is such a cock. So one of the main things that I think needs to be said for the value of a guy like Steve Orlando digging into whatever he wants to dig into is it also leads to him bringing up uh, these sort of random characters. So Judas Traveler is connected to the cult of the Scryer, and he ultimately 
Ali is a character who kind of would have had nothing to do with it, but he gets drawn in by Norman Osborn's far more clever machinations. The character actually comes up over and over again throughout the Spider-Man clone saga era. He does depart uh, around the same time as Tom DeFalco uh, and is inexplicably now connected with Orcus as of Giant Size X-Men Thunderbird. Wait, have Tom DeFalco and Judas Traveler ever been seen in the same room together? What an excellent question. I don't believe so. Mm. That would explain so much. Someone call the Krakoan uh, Legionnaires? I didn't know who the fuck this was. I had to Google him. Well, and with this and, you know, Cerebra coming from 2099, Steve's writing Spider-Man 2099, Judas Traveler is originally a Spider-Man villain. This could all, like, sew up even tighter, which I think is really impressive, even if a lot of the cuts make me giggle a little bit in a fun way. Like, it's, they are ludicrous in a way that I want comics to be at all times. But, yeah, definitely not who I was expecting as a big villain reveal at the end of this. But, you know, it all kind of makes sense with everything we're working with right now i think i've come upon something else that makes him an interesting villain reveal for the end of this issue specifically because his you know profession is is uh, listed as criminal psychologist so you've got birdie on the one hand and then you've got judas traveler at the end so that that might have been uh intentional also let us not forget that we are and i mean this with affection because i'm gonna read it and i'm gonna collect it and just fuck me in the face or whatever but like we're about to hunker on in for Ben Riley and the X-Men crossing paths multiple times throughout the Dark, Dark Web. Web. So this could also be more clever seating for an event nobody asked for except for marketing. <laughs> 